the primordial, theriomorphic serpent god is endless, potential, is whatever being is prior to the emergence of the capacity for experience. This potential has been represented as the self-devouring dragon, most commonly because this image, portrayed in figure 29, the Ouroboros, pre-cosmogonic dragon of chaos, aptly symbolizes the union of incommensurate opposites. The Ouroboros is simultaneously representative of two antithetical primordial elements. As a snake, the Ouroboros is a creature of the ground, of matter. As a bird, a winged animal, it is a creature of the air, the sky, spirit. The Ouroboros symbolizes the union of known, associated with spirit, and unknown, associated with matter, explored and unexplored symbolizes the juxtaposition of the masculine principles of security, tyranny, and order with the feminine principles of darkness, dissolution, creativity, and chaos. Furthermore, as a snake, the Ouroboros has the capacity to shed its skin, to be reborn. Thus, it also represents the possibility of transformation and stands for the knower who can transform chaos into order and order into chaos. The Ouroboros stands for, or comprises, everything that is as of yet unencountered prior to its differentiation as a consequence of active exploration and classification. It is the source of all the information that makes up the determinant world of experience and is, simultaneously, the birthplace of the experiencing subject. The Ouroboros is one thing as everything that has not yet been explored is one thing. It exists everywhere and at all times. It is completely self-contained, completely self-referential. It feeds, fertilizes, and engulfs itself. It unites the beginning and the end, being and becoming, in the endless circle of its existence. It serves as symbol for the ground of reality itself. It is the set of all things that are not yet things, the primal origin and ultimate point of return for every discriminable object and every independent subject. It serves as progenitor of all we know, all that we don't know, and of the spirit that constitutes our capacity to know and not know. It is the mystery that constantly emerges when solutions to old problems cause new problems, is the sea of chaos surrounding man's island of knowledge and the source of that knowledge as well. It is all new experience generated by time, which incessantly works to transform the temporarily predictable once again into the unknown. It has served mankind as the most ubiquitous and potent of primordial gods, as Eric Neumann, Jung's great student, suggests. This is the ancient Egyptian symbol of which it is said, Draco interfesit si ipsum, meritat si ipsum, impregnat si ipsum. It slays, weds, and impregnates itself. It is man and woman begetting and conceiving, devouring and giving birth, active and passive, above and below, at once. As the heavenly serpent, the Ouroboros was known in ancient Babylon, in later times, in the same area, it was often depicted by the Mandaeans. Its origin is ascribed by Macrobius to the Phoenicians. It is the archetype of the All-One, appearing as Leviathan and as Ion, as Oceanus and also as the primal being that says, I am Alpha and Omega. As the Neph of antiquity, it is the primal snake, the most ancient deity of the prehistoric world. The Ouroboros can be traced in the revelation of St. John and among the Gnostics, as well as among the Roman syncretists. There are pictures of it in the sand paintings of the Navajo Indians and in Giotto. It is found in Egypt, Africa, Mexico, and India, among the gypsies as an amulet, and in the alchemical texts. The Ouroboros is Tiamat, the dragon who inhabits the deep, transformed by Marduk into the world. 
Apophis, the serpent who nightly devours the sun, and Rahab, the Leviathan, slain by Yahweh in the course of the creation of the cosmos. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Canst thou put a hook into his nose, or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Wilt thou take him for a servant forever? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird? Or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Canst thou fill his skin with barbed irons or his head with fish spears? Lay thine hand upon him. Remember the battle. Do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Who can discover the face of his garment? Or who can come to him with his double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride, shut up together as with a close seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined to one another. They stick together that they cannot be sundered. By his kneesings a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke, as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. His heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of the nether millstone. When he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breakings, they purify themselves. The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold, the spear, the dart, nor the habergeon. He esteemeth iron as straw, and brass as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Slingstones are turned with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. Sharp stones are under him. He spreadeth sharp-pointed things upon the mire. He maketh the deep to boil like a pot. He maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. He maketh a path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be hoary. Upon earth there is not his like, who is made without fear. He beholdeth all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. Job 41.1-34 The Ouroboros is that which exists as pure, unqualified potential, prior to the manifestation of such potential, in the experience of the limited subject, is the infinite possibility for sudden dramatic unpredictability that still resides in the most thoroughly explored and familiar of objects, things, other people, ourselves. That unpredictability is not mere material possibility or potential, it is also meaning. The domain of chaos, which is where what to do has not yet been specified, is a place characterized by the presence of potent emotions, discouragement, depression, fear, rootlessness, loss, and disorientation. It is the affective aspect of chaos that constitutes what is most clearly known about chaos. It is darkness, drought, the suspension of norms, and death. It is the terror of the dark of the night which fills itself with demons of the imagination, yet exerts an uncanny fascination. 
It is the fire that magically reduces one determinate thing to another. It is the horror and curiosity engendered by the stranger and foreigner. The Ouroboros, the primordial matrix, contains in embryonic form everything that can in principle possibly be experienced and the thing that does the experiencing. The great serpent, the matrix, is therefore consciousness, spirit before it manifests itself, and matter before it is separated from spirit. This great mythological idea finds its echo in certain modern theories of the development of the subject, most particularly among those entitled constructivist. The famous Swiss developmental psychologist Jean Piaget claimed, for example, that the experiencing subject constructs himself in infancy as a consequence of his exploratory activity. He acts and observes himself acting, then imitates the action, forming a primordial representation of himself, later formulates a more abstracted model of his own actions. Thus, the subject is created from the information generated in the course of exploratory activity. Contemporaneously, the world comes into being. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces, and gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Thou didst cleave the fountain and the flood. Thou driedst up mighty rivers. The day is thine. The night also is thine. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. Thou hast set all the borders of the earth. Thou hast made summer and winter. Psalm 74, 14-17 Actions have consequences. The consequences of actions constitute the world, the familiar world when they are predictable, the world of the unexpected when they are not. The state of the origin has been represented most abstractly as a circle, the most perfect of geometric forms, or as a sphere, without beginning or end, symmetrical across all axes. Plato, in the Timaeus, described the primary source as the round, there at the beginning. In the Orient, the world and its meaning springs from the encircled interplay and union of the light, spiritual, masculine yang and the dark, material, feminine, yin. According to the adepts of medieval alchemy, discernible objects of experience and the subjects who experienced them emerged from the round chaos, which was a spherical container of the primordial element. The god of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, Revelations 22.13, places himself outside of or beyond worldly change and unites the temporal opposites within the great circle of his being. The assimilation of the origin to a circle finds narrative echo in myths describing heaven as the end to which life is or should be devoted, at least from the perspective of the immortal soul. The kingdom of God promised by Christ is in fact re-establishment of paradise although a paradise characterized by reconciliation of opposing forces and not regressive dissolution into pre-conscious unity. Such re-establishment closes the circle of temporal being. The Uroboric initial state is the place where all opposite things were, will be, united. The great self-devouring dragon, whose division into constituent elements constitutes the precondition for experience itself. This initial state is a place free of problems and has a paradisal aspect in consequence. However, the price that must be paid for Uroboric paradise is being itself. It is not until the original unity of all things is broken up until the most primordial of gods is murdered, that existence itself springs into being. The emergence of things, however, brings with it the problem of conflict, a problem that must be solved optimally without eliminating the fact of existence itself. The Ouroboros is the unified parent of the known, the Great Father, 
explored territory and the familiar, and of the unknown, the great mother, anomalous information and the unpredictable. It might be regarded as well as the single, androgynous grandparent of the hero, son of the night and the day, mediator between the known and unknown, whose being constitutes a necessary precondition for the existence of differentiated things, and who can, therefore, also be regarded as a causa prima. The world parents, earth and sky, emerge when the Uroboric dragon undergoes a first division. Figure 30, the birth of the world parents, presents the birth of the world in schematic form insofar as it has been conceptualized by the mythic imagination. The chaos that constitutes totality divides itself into what has been explored and what has yet to be explored. From the mythic perspective, this division is equivalent to the emergence of the cosmos and, therefore, to creation or genesis itself. One thing is missing, the fact of the explorer and the nature of his relationship with what is known and what has yet to be known. With the birth of the explorer, with his construction from the interplay between culture and nature, the entire world comes into being. This emergence of experience is portrayed in figure 31, the constituent elements of the world in dynamic relationship. The knower is simultaneously child of nature and culture, creator of culture as a consequence of his encounter with nature or the unknown world, and the person for whom the unknown is a reality. It is almost impossible to overestimate the degree to which the world parent's schema of categorization colors, or alternatively has been derived from, fundamental human presumption and activity. The world is explored territory, surrounded by mystery. That mystery is experienced as undifferentiated but oft-menacing chaos. Everything that occupies such chaos is directly perceived, not abstractly conceptualized, as identical to it, is directly perceived as unknown and anxiety-provoking. The foreigner, therefore, the occupant of the habitation of dragons, Isaiah 34.13, is naturally apprehended as an agent of formless chaos. Iliadus states, one of the outstanding characteristics of traditional societies is the opposition that they assume between their inhabited world and the unknown and indeterminate space that surrounds it. The former is the world, more precisely our world, the cosmos. Everything outside it is no longer a cosmos, but a sort of other world, a foreign, chaotic space peopled by ghosts, demons, foreigners, who are assimilated to, undistinguished from more accurately, the demons and the souls of the dead. Everything outside occupies the same categorical space as the dragon of chaos or the terrible mother. The early Indo-Europeans equated the destruction of enemies in battle to the slaying of Ritra by Indra. The ancient Egyptians regarded the Hyksos, barbarians, as equivalent to Apophis, the serpent who nightly devours the sun. And the archaic Iranians, Zoroastrians, equated the mythic struggle of King Faradun against a foreign usurper, the dragon Azdahak, with the cosmogonic fight of the hero Thraytona against Azidahaka, the primordial serpent of chaos. The enemies of the Old Testament Hebrews also suffer the same fate. They are regarded as equivalent to Rahab or Leviathan, the serpent overcome by Yahweh in his battle to establish the world. Speak and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lieth in the midst of his rivers, which hath said, My river is mine own, and I have made it for myself. Ezekiel 29.3. Also, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, hath devoured me. He hath crushed me. He hath made me an empty vessel. He hath swallowed me up like a dragon. 
He hath filled his belly with my delicates. He hath cast me out. Jeremiah 51.34 Iliada continues. At first sight, this cleavage in space appears to be due to the opposition between an inhabited and organized, hence cosmicized, territory and the unknown space that extends beyond its frontiers. On one side, there is a cosmos. On the other, a chaos. But we shall see that if every inhabited territory is a cosmos, this is precisely because it was first consecrated, because in one way or another it is the work of the gods or is in communication with the world of the gods. The world, that is our world, is a universe within which the sacred has already manifested itself, in which, consequently, the breakthrough from plane to plane has become possible and repeatable. It is not difficult to see why the religious moment implies the cosmogonic moment. The sacred reveals absolute reality and at the same time makes orientation possible. Hence, it founds the world in the sense that it fixes the limits and establishes the order of the world. All this appears very clearly from the Vedic ritual for taking possession of a territory. Possession becomes legally valid through the erection of a fire altar consecrated to Agni. One says that one is installed when one has built a fire altar, and all those who build the fire altar are legally established. By the erection of a fire altar, Agni is made present, and communication with the world of the gods is ensured. The space of the altar becomes a sacred space. But the meaning of the ritual is far more complex, and if we consider all of its ramifications, we shall understand why consecrating a territory is equivalent to making it a cosmos, to cosmicizing it. For in fact, the erection of an altar to Agni is nothing but the reproduction on the microcosmic scale of the creation. The water in which the clay is mixed is assimilated to the primordial water. The clay that forms the base of the altar symbolizes the earth. The lateral walls represent the atmosphere, and so on. And the building of the altar is accompanied by songs that proclaim which cosmic region has just been created. Hence, the erection of a fire altar, which alone validates taking possession of a new territory, is equivalent to a cosmogony. An unknown, foreign, and unoccupied territory, which often means unoccupied by our people, still shares in the fluid and larval modality of chaos. By occupying it, and, above all, by settling in it, man symbolically transforms it into a cosmos through a ritual repetition of the cosmogony. What is to become our world must first be created, and every creation has a paradigmatic model, the creation of the universe by the gods. When the Scandinavian colonists took possession of Iceland and cleared it, they regarded the enterprise neither as an original undertaking nor as human and profane work. For them, their labor was only repetition of a primordial act, the transformation of chaos into cosmos by the divine act of creation. When they tilled the desert soil, they were in fact repeating the act of the gods who had organized chaos by giving it a structure, forms, and norms. Whether it is a case of clearing uncultivated ground or of conquering and occupying a territory already inhabited by other human beings, ritual taking possession must always repeat the cosmogony. For in the view of archaic societies, everything that is not our world is not yet our world. A territory can be made ours only by creating it anew, that is, by consecrating it. This religious behavior in respect to unknown lands continued even in the West, down to the dawn of modern times, and was reflected recently in the planting of the flag on the moon by the American astronauts. The Spanish and Portuguese conquistadors discovering and conquering territories, 
took possession of them in the name of Jesus Christ, the world-creating Logos. A similar form of ritual and ideation dominates processes even as simple as the establishment of a new building. As Iliada points out, in India, before a single stone is laid, the astrologer shows what spot in the foundation is exactly above the head of the snake that supports the world. The mason fashions a little wooden peg from the wood of the Kadira tree, and with a coconut drives the peg into the ground at this particular spot in such a way as to peg the head of the snake securely down. If this snake should ever shake its head really violently, it would shake the world to pieces. A foundation stone is placed above the peg. The cornerstone is thus situated exactly at the center of the world, but the act of foundation at the same time repeats the cosmogonic act, for to secure the snake's head to drive the peg into it is to imitate the primordial gesture of Soma, or of Indra when the latter smote the serpent in his lair when his thunderbolt cut off his head. Order, explored territory, is constructed out of chaos and exists simultaneously in opposition to that chaos, to the new chaos, more accurately, to the unknown now defined in opposition to explored territory. Everything that is not order, that is, not predictable, not usable, is by default, by definition, chaos. The foreigner, whose behaviors cannot be predicted, who is not kin either by blood or by custom, who is not an inhabitant of the cosmos, whose existence and domain has not been sacralized, is equivalent to chaos, and not merely metaphorically equated with chaos. As such, his appearance means threat, as his action patterns and beliefs have the capacity to upset society itself, to dissolve and flood the world, and to reinstitute the dominion of the Ouroboros. The Great Mother Images of the Unknown or Unexplored Territory The mother of songs, the mother of our whole seed, bore us in the beginning. She is the mother of all races of men and the mother of all tribes. She is the mother of the thunder, the mother of the rivers, the mother of trees and of all kinds of things. She is the mother of songs and dances. She is the mother of the older brother stones. She is the mother of the grain and the mother of all things. She is the mother of the younger brother Frenchman and of the strangers. She is the mother of the dance paraphernalia and of all temples, and the only mother we have. She is the mother of the animals, the only one, and the mother of the Milky Way. It was the mother herself who began to baptize. She gave us the limestone coca dish. She is the mother of the rain, the only one we have. She alone is the mother of all things, she alone. And the mother has left a memory in all the temples. With her sons, the saviors, she left songs and dances as a reminder. Thus the priests, the fathers, and the older brothers have reported. From Eric Neumann Representation of culture, the known, is simple, comparatively. It is second-order abstraction, depiction of that which has already been made subject to order. Representation of culture is encapsulation of that to which behavioral adaptation has previously occurred, of those things or situations whose sensory properties, affective implications, and motivational significances have been and are presently specified. Representation of the knower, the human subject, is also depiction of that which is constantly encountered in all interpersonal interactions and in all self-conscious states, is portrayal of those aspects of an infinitely complex set of data which have at least been experienced, if not exhausted. Representation of the unknown, however, appears impossible, a contradiction in terms. How can what has not yet been encountered be comprehended, understood, embodied, 
faced or adapted to. But what has not been encountered must be comprehended. The range of our experience continually supersedes the domain of our determinate knowledge. We are, therefore, prone to constant contact with the unknown, it appears, every time we make an error. Every time our presumptions are wrong, every time our behaviors do not produce the consequences we expect and desire, the absence of specific depiction, appropriate to inexplicable circumstance, does not alleviate the necessity of appropriate action, even though the nature of that action cannot yet be specified. This means that the nature of the unknown, as such, must become represented in order to design action patterns which are broadly suited for response to what cannot yet and cannot eternally be predicted or controlled. We are, in fact, capable of a set of paradoxical abilities. We know what to do when we do not know what to do. We know how to represent what to do when we do not know what to do. Finally, we know how to represent what we have not yet encountered. These adaptive capacities, impossible at first glance, immensely further our capacity to behave successfully in the face of our mysterious experience and to communicate and broaden that capacity. If an error in judgment, interpretation, or behavior occurs and something unexpected appears, that unexpected thing has identifiable properties. It is dangerous and promising. The danger is potential for punishment, frustration, disappointment, social isolation, physical damage, even death. Every moment of threat, however, is simultaneously a moment of opportunity. The change that upsets the presently predictable and orderly also means potential for advancement into a more promising future. The unexpected is information itself, information necessary for the constant expansion of adaptive competence. Such information comes packaged in danger and promise. To gain the information promised, the danger must be overcome. This process of necessary eternal overcoming constantly constructs and transforms our behavioral repertoires and representational schemas. Everything presently known about the subject and objects of human experience was at one time merely the undifferentiated unknown, which was far more than what yet remained to be discovered about the collectively apprehensible sensory qualities of the world. The unknown may manifest itself in the consensually validatable empirical realm as an aspect of the material world. Likewise, it may appear as new significance where none was evident before. What is known and familiar poses no threat, but offers no possibility beyond that which has been previously determined. The explored thing or situation has been associated with behaviors that render it beneficial in the ideal or at least irrelevant. The omnipresent unknown, by contrast, presents threat and promise infinite in scope, impossible to encapsulate, equally impossible to ignore. The unknown, unexpected or unpredictable, is the source of all conditional knowledge, and the place that such knowledge returns to, so to speak, when it is no longer useful. Everything we know, we know because someone explored something they did not understand, explored something they were afraid of, in awe of. Everything we know, we know because someone generated something valuable in the course of an encounter with the unexpected. As the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead has it, civilization advances by extending the number of important operations which we can perform without thinking about them. All things that we know no longer demand our attention. To know something is to do it automatically, without thinking, to categorize it at a glance or less than a glance, or to ignore it entirely. The nervous system is designed to eliminate predictability from consideration, 
and to focus limited analytical resources where focus would produce useful results. We attend to the places where change is occurring, where something is happening that has not yet been modeled, where something is happening that has not yet had behaviors erected around it, where something is happening that is not yet understood. Consciousness itself might be considered as that organ which specializes in the analysis and classification of unpredictable events. Attention and concentration naturally gravitate to those elements in the experiential field that contain the highest concentration of novelty or that are the least expected prior to what might normally be considered higher cognitive processing. The nervous system responds to irregular change and eliminates regularity. There is limited information, positive and negative, in the predictable. The novel occurrence, by contrast, might be considered a window into the transcendent space where reward and punishment exist in eternal and unlimited potential. The unknown or unexpected or novel appears when plans go wrong, when behavioral adaptation or interpretive schema fails to produce what is desired or to predict what occurs. The appearance of the unexpected or unpredictable inhibits ongoing goal-directed activity in the absence of conscious volition. Concurrently with this inhibition of activity comes inexorable redirection of attention toward the unexpected event. The unexpected grips behavior and spontaneously generates antithetical affects, varying in intensity with the improbability of the occurrence, creating heightened interest, fear, intense curiosity, or outright terror. This motivational significance appears to have been experienced as an intrinsic feature of the unknown prior to the strict formal modern division of experiential world into empirical object and subjective observer, and is still fundamentally experienced in that manner today. Rudolf Otto, in his seminal investigation into the nature of religious experience, described such experience as numinous, involuntarily gripping, indicative of significance beyond the normal and average. The numinous experience has two aspects. Mysterium tremendum, which is capacity to invoke trembling and fear, and mysterium fascinans, capacity to powerfully attract, fascinate, and compel. This numinous power, divine import, is extreme affective relevance and concomitant direction of behavior by the unknown object. This power is commonly considered by those subject to it as a manifestation of God, personification of the unknown, and ultimate source of all conditional knowledge, as Otto states. The feeling of it may at times come sweeping like a gentle tide, pervading the mind with a tranquil mood of deepest worship. It may pass over into a more set and lasting attitude of the soul, continuing, as it were, thrillingly vibrant and resonant, until at last it dies away and the soul resumes its profane, non-religious mood of everyday experience. It may burst in sudden eruptions up from the depths of the soul, with spasms and convulsions, or lead to the strangest excitements, to intoxicated frenzy, to transport, and to ecstasy. It has its wild and demonic forms and can sink to an almost grisly horror and shuddering. It has its crude, barbaric antecedents and early manifestations. And again, it may be developed into something beautiful and pure and glorious. It may become the hushed, trembling, and speechless humility of the creature in the presence of whom or what in the presence of that which is a mystery, inexpressible, and above all creatures. Nothing that is not represented can be said to be understood, not as we normally use that term. Nonetheless, understanding of the unknown, which cannot in theory be represented, is vital to continued survival. 
Desire to represent the unknown, to capture its essence, is in consequence potent enough to drive the construction of culture, the net that constrains the unknowable source of all things. The impetus for representation of the domain of the unexpected arose and arises as a consequence of the intrinsic, biologically determined, affective or emotional significance of the unknown or novel world. Representations of the unknown constitute attempts to elaborate upon its nature, to illuminate its emotional and motivational significance, to illuminate its being from the pre-scientific or mythic perspective. This is categorization of all that has not yet been explored and represented in the service of adaptation to that which has not yet been understood. This is the attempt to formulate a conception of the category of all as of yet uncategorized things, so that a useful stance might be adopted with regard to that category. The novel ceaselessly inspires thought and allows itself to be entangled, yet inevitably transcends all attempts at final classification. The unknown, therefore, provides a constant powerful source of energy for exploration and the generation of new information. Desire to formulate a representation of that which supersedes final classification and remains eternally motivating might well be understood as a prepotent and irresistible drive. That drive constitutes what might be regarded as the most fundamental religious impulse constitutes the culturally universal attempt to define and establish a relationship with God and underlies the establishment of civilized historical order. The product of this drive, the culturally constructed complex extant in fantasy, the symbol composed of communicable representation of all things constantly threatening and promising to man, affects and structures the experience of each individual yet remains impersonal, distinct, and separate. As Carl Jung states, the living symbol formulates an essential unconscious factor, and the more widespread this factor is, the more general is the effect of the symbol, for it touches a corresponding chord in every psyche. Since, for a given epoch, it is the best possible expression for what is still unknown, it must be the product of the most complex and differentiated minds of that age. But, in order to have an effect at all, it must embrace what is common to a large group of men. This can never be what is most differentiated, the highest attainable, for only a very few attain to that or understand it. The common factor must be something that is still so primitive that its ubiquity cannot be doubted. Only when the symbol embraces that and expresses it in the highest possible form is it of general efficacy. Herein lies the potency of the living social symbol and its redeeming power. This dynamic representation might form part of the subjective experience of a myriad of people and therefore have its own biologically grounded, culturally determined existence independent of any given person at any given time, even to follow its own intrinsic rules of development, yet fail to exist objectively as the objective is currently understood. Ritualized, dramatic, or mythic representations of the unknown, the domain that emerges when error is committed, appear to have provided the initial material for the most primordial and fundamental aspects of formalized religions. Appreciation of the nature of the unknown as a category developed as a consequence of observation of our inherent response to what we did not expect, manifested as predictable pattern of affect and behavior. Fear and curiosity, terror and hope, inhibition of ongoing activity and cautious exploration, habituation and generation of novel and situation-specific appropriate behavioral strategies. Two things are the same from the empirical viewpoint if they share collectively apprehended sensory features. 
two things are the same from the metaphoric, dramatic, or mythical perspective, from the perspective of the natural category, if they produce the same subjective state of being, affect or motivation, or have the same functional status, which is implication for behavior. Experiences that share affective tone appear categorizable in single complexes, symbolic in nature, from the standpoint of abstract cognition, appear as products of culture which evolved in the social environment characteristic of ancestral Homo sapiens and later disappeared. Such complexes might play a useful role in the promotion of general adaptive behavior in the face of feared and promising objects, in the absence of detailed exploration-generated information regarding the explicit nature of these objects. These representations might be considered the consequence of first-level representation, of imitation, as Piaget pointed out, and then, later, the consequence of more abstracted second-order representation, of symbolic understanding. Understanding can be reached at the most inclusive, yet primary level, through ritual and mimesis, an unknown phenomenon, gripping but incomprehensible, can yet be represented ritually, can be acted out. Secondary representation of this acting out constitutes the initial form of abstract representation. To understand the lion, for example, or the hunted beast, it is first necessary to become the lion or the hunted beast, to mimic physically, and later to represent the mimicry in imagination. It is in this manner that the son imitates the father, whom he will later become. A child's embodiment of the parent means his incorporation of the knowledge of the parent, at least insofar as that knowledge is action. The child acts out his father, without understanding him and without understanding the reasons for his acting out. It could be said, metaphorically, that the imitating child is possessed by the spirit of the father, as the father was possessed in his own childhood. The spirit of the father may be conceived in this representational schema as an entity independent of the particular father or the particular son, as something that manifests itself in imagination and in possession of behavior generation after generation in more or less constant and traditional form. Similarly, the unknown, which might be considered object and subject simultaneously, which manifests itself in the perceptible world in affect and which grips behavior, might well be regarded as, or manifest itself in imagination as, a transpersonal entity, or as the result of the actions of a transpersonal entity. The ancestral primordial hunter, terrified by something unknown in the bush, portrays his encounter with what frightened him by acting out the unknown demon when he returns to the village. This acting out is simultaneously embodiment and representation. It is basic-level hypothesis regarding the nature of the unknown as such. Alternatively, perhaps, he fashions an image, an idol of the thing, and gives concrete form to what until then is merely behavioral compulsion. The unknown first appears symbolically as an independent personality when it cannot be conceived of in any other fashion, and later appears as if it were a personality, in evidently metaphoric guise. Evidence for the adoption of personality by representational or quasi-representational complexes is plentiful. Such complexes may construct themselves over the course of many centuries as a consequence of the exploratory and creative endeavors of many disparate individuals united within the communicative network of culture. It is in this manner, over vast stretches of time, that the transpersonal domain of the imagination becomes populated with spirits. Jung described the space occupied by such spirits as the pleroma, 
a Gnostic term. The pleroma might be described as the subjective world of experience in remembrance. The episodic world, perhaps from the perspective of modern memory theory, although representations apparently collectively apprehensible under certain peculiar circumstances, like those of the Virgin Mary in Yugoslavia prior to the devastating Serbian-Bosnian-Muslim War, or those of alien spaceships, UFOs, during the Cold War, also make their home there. The Pleroma is the space in which heaven and hell have their existence, the place where Plato's supracelestial ideals reside, the ground of dream and fantasy. It appears to have a four-dimensional structure like that of objective space-time and of memory, but is characterized by a tremendous vagueness with regards to category and temporality. The spirits which inhabit the Pleroma in its natural condition are deities. Undifferentiated mixes of subject and object, motivational significance and sensory aspect, elaborated into personified representations by the efforts of many. This is merely to say that a representation is a social construct with historical, even biological, roots, like any idea, and that the spirit who inhabits the imagination is not necessarily a figment created by the person who has that imagination. The devil is not the product of the particular Christian. It is more accurate to note that the figure of the devil, or of Christ for that matter, inhabits the mind of the Christian and of all Christians, and that such habitation occurs as a consequence of transpersonal social and historical processes operating almost completely beyond the realm of individual control. The child, similarly, cannot be said to create the monsters that live in his imagination. They grow there, so to speak, and are then subjectively observed, are fed by casual statements on the part of adults, by action patterns the child observes but cannot explain, by emotions and motivational states that emerge suddenly and unpredictably, by the fantasies in books, on TV, and in the theater. Events or experiences that remain beyond the reach of exploration, assimilation, and accommodation stay firmly entrenched in, or automatically ascribed to, the domain of the unknown, threatening, and promising. The category of all events that cannot yet be categorized can nonetheless be modeled through metaphoric application of partially comprehensible yet affect-inducing occurrences whose emotional relevance in some way matches that of the unknown. Each of the specific things that signifies danger, for example, or alternatively the enhancement of life, appears easily associated with every other specific thing characterized by the same property, as well as with novelty itself, which produces fear and hope as part of its subjectively intrinsic nature. These experiences appear interassociated on the basis of the similar affective or behavioral states they inspire, the motivational effects they engender prior to development of habituation in course of exploratory behavior. The archaic limbic system has its own method of classification, so to speak, experienced privately as emotion or as behavior spontaneously undertaken manifested outside the realm of conditional, abstract, culturally determined presumption. Everything novel encountered, avoided because of involuntary or willfully manifested fear or ignorance, is potentially or actively linked with all that remains outside of individual competence and or cultural classification. Everything that produces fear may be subjectively considered one aspect of the same subterranean thing. What is that thing? The unknown as such surrounds all things, but exists only in a hypothetical state and finds representation in symbolic form as the Ouroboros, as we have seen. The disintegration or division of the Ouroboros gives rise to all things, including the disorder or unpredictability that is defined in opposition to what has been explored, 
This more narrowly defined domain of disorder or unpredictability, which is the unknown as it is actually experienced rather than as a hypothetical entity, tends to be portrayed as something distinctly feminine, as the daughter of the great serpent, as the matrix of all determinate being. It is useful to regard the great mother as the primary agent of the serpent of chaos, as the serpent's representative, so to speak, in the profane domain. The serpent of chaos can be seen lurking behind the great mother, as we shall see, and she often adopts reptilian, material, or bird-like spiritual features. This relationship is schematically represented in figure 32, novelty, the great mother, as daughter of the Ouroboros. In the incarnation depicted, the great mother is Venus, goddess of fertility and love. As the winged mother, bird and matter, she is spirit and earth at once. The wings might just as easily be replaced by the icon of a snake, which would tie her figure more closely to the earth and to the idea of transformation. The capsule that surrounds her, for example, frequently found enveloping Christ as son of the Divine Mother, or Mary, the Divine Mother herself, in late medieval and early Renaissance art, is the mandorla, or vesica pisces, the fish's bladder, which appears to have served as sexual, symbolic representation of the source of all things since well before written history began. The Ouroboros and the figure of the Great Mother commonly overlap because the chaos comprising the original state is hard to distinguish from the chaos defined in opposition to established order. Two things that have no distinguishable features, as is the case for the two domains of chaos, are difficult to separate from one another. The distinctions between the figures of the Ouroboros and the Great Mother are just as important as their similarities, however. An immense difference obtains between the possibility of something unknown and an actual unknown. The difference between potential and reality Eliade provides an example of a careful attempt to disentangle the categories drawn from Lao Tzu. In another cosmogonic fragment, the Tao is denominated an undifferentiated and perfect being born before heaven and earth. We can consider it the mother of this world, but I do not know its name. I will call it Tao, and if it must be named, its name will be the Immense. The undifferentiated and perfect being is interpreted by a commentator of the second century BC thus. The mysterious unity of heaven and earth chaotically constitutes the condition of the uncarved block. Hence, the Tao is a primordial totality, living and creative, but formless and nameless. That which is nameless is the origin of heaven and earth. That which has a name is the mother of the 10,000 beings. The unknown, as such, is the thing in and of itself. By contrast, the unknown as encountered by a determinate subject in a particular situation is the matrix of all being, the actual source of information that, once explored and categorized, constitutes cosmos or order and, for that matter, exploring agent. Lao Tzu also says, in an attempt to further clarify the situation, The divinity of the valley does not die. It is the obscure female. The gate of the obscure female, that is the origin of heaven and earth. The unknown appears to be generally conceptualized or symbolically represented as female, primarily because the female genitalia, hidden, private, unexplored, productive, serve as gateway or portal to the divine unknown world or source of creation, and therefore easily come to stand for that place. Novelty and femininity share analogical or categorical identity from this perspective. Both constitute a window, so to speak, into the world beyond. Woman, insofar as she is subject to natural demands, is not merely a model for nature. 
She is divine nature in imagination and actuality. She literally embodies the matrix of biological being and provides, as such, an appropriate figure for the metaphoric modeling of the ground of everything. The female body constitutes the border between normal experience and the totality from which all forms emerge. Infants come from mothers. This hypothesis, based upon direct observation, accounts for the provisional source of particular individuals. The origin, per se, partakes of the same essential ineffable nature, partakes of whatever is characteristic of the experienceable mother and other identifiable points of origin which cannot be described or comprehended so easily, such as the caves where ores grow and mature or the ground where crops thrive. The matrix of all things is something feminine, like the mothers of experience. It is something with an endlessly fecund and renewed, maternal and virginal nature, something that defines fertility and therefore femininity itself. Things come from somewhere. All things have their birthplace. The relationship of man writ large to nature, eternal mother, endlessly mimics that of the particular child to his personal mother. Or, to be more accurate, the child and the mother mimic life and the world. The unknown, as it can be encountered, is female, with paradoxical qualities. The great and terrible mother of all things promises endlessly. She also threatens absolutely. The outcome of an encounter with the unknown, which constitutes the necessary precondition for the generation of new information, for generation of the cosmos and of the experiencing subject, cannot be specified beforehand. Something new might benefit or destroy. Femininity shares emotional valence with novelty and threat, furthering the utility of the female as metaphoric grist because of the union that exists within experience between creation of one thing and destruction and transformation of another. The process of embryogenesis itself required that blood change form as the fetus thrives on the blood of its mother. The act of birth itself is traumatic, painful, dangerous, and frightening, recapitulating the natural theme of creation, transformation, and destruction. Nourishment is linked integrally with death and terror even from the beginning when the metamorphosis of blood into milk transforms the mother into food for the infant. Nature is feminine, in addition, because of the isomorphic relationship that exists between childhood dependency on maternal beneficence and caprice and adult subjugation to biological reality. Human infants are prepared instinctively to establish relationship with the mother and to respond with vitality to manifestation of maternal interest. Every individual's primordial world experience is experience of mother, who is the world itself in initial developmental stages, insofar as the world has any motivational significance whatsoever. Indeed, for individuals who are sufficiently stunted in their psychological development, the world never evolves into anything other beyond mother. Furthermore, the ontogenesis of the individual and the mother-child symbiosis is comparable to the phylogenesis of humanity and the relationship of that humanity with, or its dependence upon, earth and sea. The archetypal infantile situation, which extends back into time prior to the establishment of culture itself, is recapitulated in adulthood with the maternal object of fear and respect, hope, love, and gratitude abstracted into experience itself. The threatening aspects of the Great Mother gather metaphoric representation as chimeras of anxiety-producing places, animals, gestures, expressions, and things. These elements, diverse from the objective perspective, from the standpoint of the proper set, nonetheless unite to produce an image of the ever-present potential danger inherent in anything unpredictable. The Great Mother, unexplored territory, is the dark, the chaos of the night, the insect, ophidian, and reptilian worlds, the damaged body, the mask of anger or terror 
the entire panoply of fear-inducing experiences commonly encountered and imagined by Homo sapiens. A dynamic complex of such objects appears as the most subtle and exact representation of the unknown imaginable, something capable simultaneously of characterizing the active bite of the snake, the life of fire, the sting of the scorpion, the trap of the spider, the most suitable embodiment of the manifest desire of nature's vital transformative forces, generative of death, dissolution, destruction, and endless creation. Feared experiences, grounded in the inexplicable, acquire representation in fantasy as fear-producing spirits. These spirits, clothed in particular anxiety-provoking occurrences, give form to aspects of experience that otherwise remain inexplicable, beyond understanding from the perspective of conditional adaptation, action, and abstract thought, but impossible to ignore from the standpoint of affect. The personality of such beings constitutes the embodiment of incomprehensible and often intolerable motivational significance comprises representation of the ground of violent emotional experience capable of inducing cognitive and behavioral possession impossible to incorporate into the domain of normal, culturally established being. Figure 33, the spontaneous personification of unexplored territory, presents one such figure and its process of development in comical form. Equivalent but more serious dynamic representations of this type are deities, gods born of human experience, possessed of quasi-objective transpersonal status, like the word, manifestations of the unfamiliar, the other, the unknown, and the unpredictable. What can now be calmly described as an archaic symbol or god from the past may also reasonably be considered as the manifestation of a primeval, independent personality, the unified embodiment in ritual or imagination of some set of phenomena united by their affective or functional equivalents. These personalities, deities, have with time lost affective and conceptual relevance as a consequence of the constant expansion of human adaptive capacity and have become broken down into less complex, more determinate aspects of experience. In their original form, however, these representational personalities revealed themselves within the creative compensatory experience of exceptional individuals beset by their own incomprehensible, although not purely idiosyncratic, personal tragedy. Concrete realization of such manifestation, transformation into an artistic production or potent story, for example, involuntarily seized the attention of peers and inspired a sense of fascination and awe. Centuries-long cultural elaboration of such production gave rise to the elaborated existence of transpersonal beings of transcendent power who inhabited the space defined by the collective imagination of mankind and who behaved in accordance with the dictates of their own irrational, myth-predicated souls. These representations served as active images, detailing to everyone what was as of yet explicitly unknown, only partially known. They pointed the way toward aspects of experience beyond the grasp of conscious abstract apprehension, but dangerous to ignore.